beginning in the spring of 1988 and continuing through the spring of 1991, the northern third of the state of Wisconsin was rocked by protests at public boat landings throughout the area. In essence, the protests were an overt attempt to prevent the tribes of the Lake Superior Chippewa, preferably known as the Ojibwe, from spearfishing walleye during spawning season, this giving rise to the term the Walleye Wars. By 1991, protest leaders had lost considerable prestige and influence over events by their group's highly offensive, racially motivated chants at the landings and in public media, by gunshots and frequent rock throwing at the boat landings, and by dangerous on-the-water harassment of the tribal spears. Federal court action entering a preliminary injunction against the leaders of the protest put an end to the violence at the boat landings, but not the underlying animosity. The beginning of the story goes back to a series of treaties entered into by the United States government and the Lake Superior Chippewa in the 1800s. The most important treaties occurred in 1837, 1842, and 1854. The 1837 and 1842 treaties provided the ceding of the Ojibwe Wisconsin land, approximately 22,000 square miles to the United States in return for annuity payments for 25 years. Most importantly, the final provision of the treaties afforded the Ojibwe to retain their rights to hunt, fish, and gather on the lands they had ceded to the United States. In 1851, federal officials required the Ojibwe to trek to Sandy Lake, Minnesota to receive their annuity payment rather than the historical location of Madeline Island. Federal officials did not arrive at the lake as scheduled and failed to provide promised rations. Hundreds of Ojibwe people died from exposure to cold weather, famine, and infectious disease. The incident, called the Wisconsin Death March, set into motion events leading to the Treaty of 1854, which established permanent reservations for four Ojibwe tribes in Wisconsin, the Bad River, La Couture, Lac de Flambeau, and Red Cliff. Fast forward to the 1970s. Attempts by the tribes to exercise their retained rights have been repeatedly frustrated by state officials for decades. Litigation finally resulted in what is commonly referred to as the vote decision. Decided in 1983 by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago, the second highest court in the land next to the U.S. Supreme Court, it ruled that the Ojibwe retained hunting, fishing, and gathering rights 
off the reservation in all the Wisconsin lands ceded in 1837 and 1842. They then sent the case back to Federal District Court Judge Crabb to deal with the particulars. In August 1987, settling questions about regulation of off-reservation hunting and fishing, Judge Crabb ruled the state could intervene to protect natural resources, but that the tribes had the right first to establish their own regulatory system. This could prevail if they showed the court their system was as protective of the resource as was the state system. After extensive scientific testimony, the tribe's regulatory code prevailed. The violence commenced the following spring. Hello, and welcome back to Meyer Fun Facts. I'm Steve Meyer, and this is the fifth episode of season three of the podcast, where we wrap up our series of podcasts about Northern Wisconsin history by focusing on the Wisconsin spearfishing controversy. We have a special guest today who spent a lot of time on the ground reporting on the dispute for its entire three years. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Meyer Fun Facts is fortunate to have as its guest an award-winning TV journalist for the local CBS affiliate. In particular, he won an award for best continuing coverage and other awards too numerous to name about today's topic, the spearfishing controversy in northern Wisconsin. He recently retired from a 10-year stint as chief spokesperson for the City of Madison Police Department, and I am proud to be able to call him a personal friend. Meyer Fun Facts gives a warm maniac welcome to Joel Despain. Bonjour and bienvenue, Joel. Well, namaste to you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get right to it. Sure. Uh, I read an uh, article concerning an interview you had in which you stated that the coverage of the spearfishing controversy was the most significant event that you covered in your 25 years as a TV journalist. Did you, in fact, say that? And if so, why? I mean, why is it true? That that is true, Steve. And, you know, I covered Jeffrey Dahmer from, you know, gavel to gavel. And and I, you know, covered the the most significant news stories in Wisconsin uh, during those 25 years. And there was never anything else that touched upon Native American culture and heritage, Wisconsin natural resources, mom and pop tourism in Northern Wisconsin, to some extent, racism. So this story really covered the waterfront, if you will, since it took place on the water, a lot of it. Um, In terms of interest, intrigue, Um, You know, this is a story that was not only of interest to folks in northern Wisconsin, but throughout Wisconsin, throughout the Midwest, it became a national and international story. So I tried to find 
all the different aspects of this to tell the story in its totality, from the resources to the tribal rights to the racism, you know, and certainly when I say racism, not all of those people who were involved in protesting Native American rights, in this case, mostly for spearing fish, they were not all racist, but there certainly were a good number up there who were saying and doing things that frankly, my first night on the boat landings, I found shocking and I couldn't believe that this was taking place in the state that I call home. In today's uh, media environment, if a journalist gets sent to location to cover a story, they're typically there for 24, 48, 72 hours. Was that the case for you or was it the longer period of time? You know, I was fortunate to be working in sort of the heyday of local journalism where there was money to be spent and there was interest in the news management in covering stories such as this. So they would send me up, you know, when the ice would break in May is when spearing would really begin. And we'd stay up there for several weeks and then we'd return throughout the year, again, covering other aspects of the story because it was really all encompassing in terms of what Northern Wisconsin had been in terms of tourism, how it was changing, to what extent did spearfishing have anything to do with that? And then just, you know, we did stories on, for instance, one time we went to a camp where they had invited Native American kids and kids from the, you know, the non-Native American community to spend time together for a couple of weeks to see if they could all get along. And of course they did, they were kids. And so we, we were up there for that. And I think, you know, some of these were real eye openers, I think for people to see, you know, that there is a way that the resources up there can be shared to a large extent, the resources had not been managed very well, you know, and I think really spearfishing was a catalyst for the Department of Natural Resources, uh, the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, GLIFWIC, which is the Native American side of, of DNR, to really manage the resource, to stock uh, more fish, and to make sure that that resource is going to be there for both tribal people and non-tribal people for many years to come, if not generations to come. For listeners of the podcast who don't live in Wisconsin, can you give us just a little brief geographical lesson on the area of the state that we're talking about? Yeah, most of this is kind of, if you looked at Wisconsin and you saw the city of Wausau, sort of north of Wausau, there are six bands of Ojibwe, which the French used to call the Chippewa. So a lot of people see it as Chippewa. Uh, I think the tribal people now prefer the word Ojibwe, but there's six bands of Lake Superior, what used to be called Chippewa in Wisconsin. And all of those bands had the right under treaties that were hammered out back in the 1800s to spearfish, to hunt, to gather wild rice, to tap maple trees, things like that. They sold the, the, the territory, they ceded it, I should say, ceded the territory, but they did not give away their rights to do these things. And so this was in dispute for, you know, a hundred years or more. And, and so eventually the court sided with the tribal people and said, you can go out and uh, harvest fish. But as we get back to these bands, 
really the band that was most prolific in taking fish off the water with the Lac de Flambeau. Now, Lac de Flambeau is a French word, uh, which means a lake of the torches. And so when the French, you know, first arrived in northern Wisconsin, they would see these tribal people out there in birch bark canoes with a, a, a real torch, you know, with fire going, spearing fish. So that's how Lac de Flambeau even got its, its name historically. And yeah, so- I hate to interrupt, oh, but I, I never knew that story. And yet I was involved in a federal criminal case involving the building of the casino at Lac de Flambeau. And they were calling the casino Lake of the Torches, but I never <laughs> I never yeah. knew the connection they, between they are the one two. and the same, uh, you know. And <laughs> so that's it, you know, again, there were there are other, there's a little there's uh, Red Cliff, there's Mole Lake. Again, there's six bands, but really, as we boil this down into the controversy of the late 80s, early 90s, it was really Lac de Flambeau, which if you take a look at Monaco Woodruff, you know, that area, which is really prime Northern Wisconsin, what people think of as I'm going up North, a lot of people would think of this area where the Lac de Flambeau are. They're just a, you know, a stone's throw from Monaco Woodruff. And of course, under the treaties, um, they had retained the right to really go and spearfish wherever they wanted. And so, you know, we could talk about a lot of different things, but in the afternoon, we would go to the DNR headquarters and the tribes would announce where they were going to go spear that night. And then the media would all, you know, go off to those boat landings. And of course, in the you know the peak of this, you had a, a an all out you know call up of law enforcement from all over the state of Wisconsin, you know from the Madison Police to Wisconsin State Patrol, small town departments. So you get out to these landings and they'd be lit up like a Christmas tree by law enforcement, and you'd have hundreds if not thousands of protesters, and then you'd have tribal people showing up and going out in their boats, which angered some even in the ways in which they were spearing fish because they were no longer they, the the so a lot of the protesters thought well if they're going to do this they have to if they want to you know pull their culture they should be out there in birch bark canoes with with real flames but instead they're out there in you know aluminum boats with flashlights and you know steel spears and so you know there were a lot of things that got people angry i don't think they understood the treaties a lot of people didn't and then, you know, just the way that the, the tribal people were going about, you know, taking fish off the lake, which to a large degree was in the spring of the year. And that was when the walleye were spawning, which is the prized, you know, fish for many as far as eating is the walleye. So, in fact, uh, some of the tribal people refer to themselves as the walleye warriors. In prepping for this podcast, I and I am not the biggest fan of judge crab and it is my opinion that she really got a bad rap from the public on her handling of of the interpretation of the treaties and the orders from the seventh circuit and that she was really doing a good job and the best she could am i off base on that or 
No, I mean, I think, you know, the, the as history has moved on a little bit, really the reading of these treaties is that uh, these tribal people had retained those rights. And, uh, you know, for years, I think the state of Wisconsin said if if they're going to, you know, they being the tribal people are going to be spearing, particularly anywhere off reservation, that they have to adhere to Wisconsin law. And she said, no, that's not the case uh, based on these treaties. And so, you know, not only did she uphold those treaties, which I think many would argue was a fair interpretation of those treaties, but she was also the one who finally brought an end to the violence and uh, the, the most serious controversy up there uh, in 1991 by issuing temporary injunctions against those who were the uh, worst behaved, if you will, at the boat landing so they could no longer go back there. And really since that time, since 1991, uh, we really haven't seen this as a, a big story in Wisconsin, although some spearing still goes on. The listeners should be aware that the genesis for this podcast came to a trip you and I took to Vilas County and we're out hiking and past a particular boat landing in which you stated, hey, that's the location uh, that I covered. And what struck me was after a description of the events of that evening, you sort of walked off from the area behind the, the park and said, look at, you know, it was night and I walked away from all the craziness and I looked up and I'm going, it's absolutely beautiful here. It was just sort of, a, for me, a juxtaposition between the anger and the antipathy versus the peacefulness of, of nature, all within 100 yards of each other. Is that what you felt? or You know, you know and that, that night you're, you're speaking of, Steve, when we saw that boat landing again, I hadn't seen it since I think it was 1989. It's a butternut lake. And... That night sticks, I mean, I, I covered, you know, countless nights of, of protest and spearing. But that night we had gotten word that the American Indian Movement, AIM, was coming in from South Dakota and Minnesota. And by about nine o'clock at night, it was uh, it, it was just intense. You know, there were many nights where we just feared, you know, somebody was going to get killed. And, and thankfully, throughout the course of all this, no one did. But I do remember before... Uh, AIM arrived, and we didn't know if they were really going to arrive. It was kind of a rumor. But I'd walked away from that landing, again, probably by about 50 yards, and I looked out over the lake and could see the northern lights. And I thought, wow, this is just so beautiful. And yet 50 yards away, there's complete chaos. And I remember that night well because we had, it, it, at this time, we were editing in the back of a station wagon, and we had edited a story that was going to air at 10, and I was going to pitch to it and allude to the fact that we had been told that AIM might show up, but they didn't. Well, at about 9.15, we heard drumming coming up the road. I mean, pitch darkness, and you could tell it was a lot of people coming, and it was loud, and they got there. This was the American Indian Movement in their jackets with the AIM on, you know, their, their logo on it. And there got to be, it almost, it reminded me of the Little Bighorn in a way, because there's a small hill there, and somebody had an American flag up on a pole. And then there started to be pushing and shoving, and, you know, with the AIM people, and again, the singing. And so it was, 
it was it was probably one of the most intense nights that I, I remember up there. And so I remember telling my photographer editor, I said, scrap the story we just shot. We're going to shoot this. I'm going to uh, voice it live uh, as I'm looking at the video. And we're just, you know, going to going to put this out there. And so we really had almost no time to put the story together. But I think we were one of the only networks that that got the story out that night because a lot of them said well we'll wait till the next day because it's so late but anyway uh it, it it was very memorable for me and i think that was almost a night where you felt things shift a little bit in terms of the you know the potential violence that this was so heated and you know there'd been a lot of you know you know racial epithets being you know tossed around uh, rocks thrown you know, there were gunshots heard. Uh, and again, no one was shot. And while the tribal people would be out on the water spearing fish, uh, some non-tribal people would come by in large boats and try to, you know, submerge the, the fishing boats of the spears. So there was always this, you know, kind of three ring circus going on, if you will. Not that it was enjoyable to watch, but there was so much action taking place. But again, it was one that, 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 AIM movement came marching in that I, I thought, wow, uh, this this really could could turn deadly tonight. But it didn't, thank goodness. Was there a point in time when the state through the governor attempted to intercede by buying out or paying the Native Americans a ca cash for them to give up rights they had retained in the in the treaties yes i you know under uh tommy thompson who was governor at that time uh in the late 80s early 90s he attempted it you know with the lock de flambeau and i believe maybe one or two other bands uh to purchase those those fishing rights and of course uh, the tribal people had waited so long to exercise those rights they were not about to to sell them off and so that didn't go anywhere um and again, you know, even as we look to modern day, there's still, you know, some tribal rights being exercised, particularly at Lac de Flambeau, now having more to do with roads being blocked that they think they should be paid, you know, dollars from the county and, and people who live in that area uh, to use tribal roads. So, you know, this, this feeling of uh, this is our land and we get to determine how it's used and we're not about to, to sell out, that, that I think permeates, you know, to today. Um, and of course, there's been a lot of things you were mentioning, the casinos, and, you know, there are a lot of people that there's, you know, some, some animosity and bad feelings towards uh, sovereign government having the right to have casino gambling. And, 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 and you know, this thing is a, a real can of worms once you start opening it up in terms of, you know, tribal rights versus, you know, what others get to do. And, and they feel that, you know, many feel that these, these treaty rights should not have been upheld, obviously. This is a brief interlude to supplement a critical point. Not only were the tribes extremely reluctant to give up their rights set forth in the treaties, the governor's top aide and point person on the treaty issue, James Clauser, was viewed as suspect at a minimum by the tribes 
because he had formerly been a lobbyist for Exxon, which earlier in the 80s had proposed a zinc and copper mine located near the headwaters of the Wolf River and adjacent to the Mole Lake Ojibwe Reservation. The tribes felt that Clauser's main motivation in negotiations was to have the Ojibwe lose their legal standing to intervene in any future court challenges in proposed mining operations in ceded territory. Not the best person to be the state's lead negotiator. Now, back to Joel. But again, the good news is that I think the resource, because there's now more checks and balances on the lakes, and you have you know tribal people putting more fish in through their you know fish hatchery programs than they take out, the DNR doing the same. But I think the resource is probably in better shape because of spearfishing in, in, in some ways. Yeah, speaking of the lingering aftermath, uh, while we were at that boat landing on Butternut, I could sense from a couple of the people that were there that we talked to that there was still bad blood about what happened in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, it's, we're 34 years after the fact, and there was residual anger, especially that one individual that we spoke with, uh, about uh, the spearfishing. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of it, Steve, gets down to fish numbers and what people can take off those lakes, particularly in the terms of walleye. And so there's quotas on a lot of those lakes, and a lot of people don't like that. And uh, fair or unfair, they, they blame spearing for at least some of those quotas being put on their favorite fishing lakes. And so I think, you know, some of that does permeate until today. And it was, I mean, let's face it, it, that was not the look that I think anyone who lives in Wisconsin wanted the world to see, obviously, <laughs> at that time. So it was a, it was not a, a, a good event in terms of, you know, there's so many, so much beauty to show off in northern Wisconsin and so much that we have to take pride in that this certainly was not one of those moments. And so, um, but again, uh, it, it, it's something that, uh, you know, to this day, um, I still think about it. And when we saw that boat landing, when I was with you, it brought it right back like it was yesterday, even though it was 30 some years ago. You know, again, I, I go back to my first night up there and I I ended up making uh, an acquaintance with a, a tribal uh, fisherman named Nick Hawkins. And Nick had flowing black hair and he was just, uh, he, he had, he carried himself with a lot of grace, even though, and I heard the things that were being said to him and things being thrown at him. And uh, when he came off the water, I said, you know, he, he almost reminded me of almost a Gandhi kind of character or something. And I said, you know, I don't know how you keep your, your, you know, your wits about you and all this. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you want to learn about why I'm here. And again, he wasn't representative of all tribal people. He said, you come back to my house right now while I'm cleaning these fish. And he started, he was somebody who was really into upholding culture and passing it on to future generations. And in fact, before Nick passed away, he built a village, a traditional village at Lac de Flambeau called Waswaganing. And so 
he was, you know, some, there were some who were really, you know, doing this because they felt their, their, their God-given rights, if you will. I don't know if that's the right terminology to use, but there were also people within the tribal groups who were trying to up the ante and get people upset at the boat landings. And there were, you know, people who were genuinely concerned about the resource. Yeah, I, you know, there were there definitely were people at those landings who were not yelling racial epithets, who were not throwing things, who were there because they were concerned about the resource. And there were definitely many tribal people who were there who had waited a long time to exercise what they believe with the rights that their ancestors hammered out with the U.S. government in the 1800s. And so, you know, you had those kind of polarizing people, Dean Christ on one side with the Stop Treaty Abuse Movement, and then you had Tom Molson, who was the chair of the Lac de Flambeau at the, that time. Those two were kind of the talking heads, if you will. But if you, if you dug a little deeper, you'd find different people with different opinions. And so, again, as you talk about the most significant story I've ever covered, there you really had to dig in. Because if you were just going to, you know, cover this from the flashpoints at the boat landings, you know, it certainly made for sensational TV, but there was a lot more going on. And, you know, you even take a look at, you know, the mom and pop resorts of Northern Wisconsin. The fact is, I think everyone knows, if you take a look at the Wisconsin Dells and other places, families were changing the ways in which they vacation. They weren't going up to these small cabins anymore. I mean, some were, but a lot of people wanted a place where dad can golf and the kids can water slide and, you know, whatever it might be. And so um, things were already changing. And again, if you look at some of those photos going back in time uh, of non-tribal people fishing up there, you'd see people with stringers with hundreds of fish. <laughs> so there were a lot of fish being taken off those lakes. And still, you know, even during the peak of spearfishing, non-tribal people were taking a lot more fish than the tribal people so you know and and so and of course there were always you know the the misinformation or the rumorville and i remember hearing that you know a lot of these fish the tribal people are taking they're not even using they're ending up in the dump and so you know we'd go out to the dump and of course we'd find fish carcasses but we didn't find any whole fish there and so you know, you ended up chasing a lot of things around. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, you've got history, you've got culture, you've got these treaties, you've got, you know, our, our what's important to everyone in this state, our natural resources and keeping them pristine. And so uh, I, I don't know how you get a, a more impactful story. And again, it wasn't something that took place in one spring and was gone. This went on for several years. Well, right. some would argue for over a <laughs> Still going on in part. Going on, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not over. Thanks. This has been a great step or a great trip back to what was pretty controversial time in northern Wisconsin and the yeah. state. Uh, I, I would say, and as we saw when we were up at that boat landing, if you were alive and, and up there at that time, is something those people up there will never forget. I think, you know, as I talk to people about spearfishing who have nothing to do with northern Wisconsin, a lot of people don't know what I'm talking about anymore. So, you know, but, you know, it's, it's, it, I think it's an important subject for us to continue to revisit because there were a lot of lessons learned. Joel. Thanks so much for joining us. 
It's been great and informative. And maybe we'll have you back on some of the issues you're dealing with today that I'm not going to make public. <laughs> All right, Steve, I know what you're talking about. No, it's been a pleasure. I, it was great to be on the podcast. And you know, there's a, this is one where people could learn a lot more and there's a lot of information out there. So if we've, you know, got some people thinking about it, uh, you just uh, Google Wisconsin and, and spearfishing or treaty rights and you can read a lot. Thanks, Joel. One can tell that Joel is not a regular listener of the pod, as he just advocated doing further research on today's topic by using Google. Unfortunately, I agree with his recommendation, as we've only just begun to scratch the surface of this issue. As a starting point, I highly recommend using the search terms spearfishing controversy, and Milwaukee Public Museum. It will get you started. You can also see and listen to one of Joel's award-winning reports by clicking on the YouTube link on the podcast descriptor. That concludes this episode of Meyer Fun Facts. Until the next episode, take care.